following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. Welcome to another combined meetup of the New Economy Network of Australia's Canberra Regional Hub, or Nina Can, and Co-ops Commons and Communities Canberra, or Co-Canberra. So Nina is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and primary objectives of the economic system. Um, there's three dimensions to Nina's work. We're building networks, connections and shared initiatives. And we're doing that within specific geographic areas like towns and cities and regions. Uh, the Canberra Regional Hub is an example of this. We're doing it across sectors within the new economy, like sustainable food, energy, transport, housing, Indigenous economics, and, and uh, many more. And we also try and get through some specific strategic goals every year within all those hubs. Um, Co-Canberra was also begun in 2016. Um, we're trying to build the new economy on the ground using the concept of climate co-ops to provide for our needs in ways which are compatible with a thriving community and thriving natural world. In the process, communities can obtain ownership and control of the organisations which meet their needs. We've begun this journey with the Pre-Power Renewable Energy Cooperative System. It's a model which is designed to adapt to other places and other sectors easily and uh, in tandem with Nina Canberra Region, we hold monthly meetups, which you are now attending. So welcome. Tonight we're going to have a bit of a yarn from the folks at the Blue Tongue Cooperative, which is a cooperative development cooperative, <laughs> I suppose, isn't it? <laughs> um, so we're joined by uh, Mark Huston and Rob McMaster from the Blue Tongue Co-op. So welcome everyone else and, and you guys. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I guess uh, maybe one of you could introduce the Blue Tongue Co-op and where it came from and what you're up to. Up to oh. you, Mark. Oh, after me? Uh, yeah. Well, it's your shout. Well, Blue Tongue's main mission is to facilitate uh, conversion of capitalist-focused organizations into democratic cooperative-type organizations uh, through employee buyouts, uh, where we facilitate employees' ability to uh, buy from the owners, the organization, and then to run it themselves, lead it and run it themselves. Uh, and uh, this usually this is a, we seek to create a win-win uh, between uh, owners who may be having a challenge in selling their, or their organization and employees who want to preserve their jobs and also sort of step up in their own lives, you might say. And uh, to facilitate this, we have a proven 10-step process to take the organization and employees through this. And uh, organizational change is uh, arguably the most important part of that. Uh, primarily be organizational change well and culture change culture is ultimately we carry it around in our head ultimately and uh, culture change in the sense that employees typically are used to top down they're used to being told what to do for the most part and uh, now we want them to step up and be leaders in their own organization and their own lives so this uh, can uh, clearly demonstrates the need for something of a mindset change, you might say, uh, which sort of 
spreads out into a culture change. So our mission is to provide this for organizations uh, and employees and owners around Australia and Asia to the extent we're able to. And uh, Rob has a lot of experience in, uh, in uh, conducting well. He wrote the book on it, so to speak, literally and figuratively. <laughs> and, uh, and myself, I've had fairly extensive experience in the culture change and mindset change space roughly about 20 years myself in various capacities. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Rob, you've had a, uh, a sort of a different road into the Blue Tongue Co-op. Um, yeah, you might want to lay out your journey on the way in. Yeah, okay. Well, basically um, <clears throat> I was um, a family member in a family business um, the only family person, and uh, there's no successor. And um, I really like the idea of transferring the ownership to the employees. So it was a top down sort of initiative to start off with. And um, probably, uh, yeah, about a nine year journey for me um, in successfully putting it in place, um, going through all the different transition options, and then. Um, the co-op um, was in place for three years, uh, which was a member participated on the board and worked uh, about two days a week. So I'm a toolmaker by trade. Uh, basically, um, you know, I was general manager there for must have been about 36 years. So that's my story in about a minute. <laughs> Yeah, nice one. 36 years is a long stint. You must have uh, got to know the ins and outs of the place quite well. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so how did you how did you become involved with the Blue Tongue Co-op? What's the link um, there? Uh, what's the link there? Well, <clears throat> Dr. Anthony Benson and uh, who was the academic who was involved in the process, which I engage, and uh, Frank Webb was a, uh, a business coach, which I engaged as a mediator. After the process had all happened, they thought, could, well, we all could see that it would be a good idea. We've got a model that works uh, to try and bring it into, introduce it into Australia. And... Um, they both approached me and asked me if I'd like to participate in helping them set up a um, like a consultancy to get it get it all going. So I did that. I, I agreed to it, um, but I'm retiring, so I'm just there as a resource type person, um, not looking for it to generate any income, but to help them on their journey. Yeah, nice one, nice one. Uh, and how about you, Mark? How did you wind up with the Blue Tongue Connection? Um, well, I was, uh, I've had the pleasure of residing in Australia almost 19 years, and uh, I won't take it back that far, though. But um, I, uh, I, was, I, was, I had the opportunity to lecture at the University of Sydney on these sorts of things, and uh, I happened to meet uh, Dr. Anthony Jensen, who's uh, one of the co-founders of Blue Tongue and he uh, probably won't mind if I brag on him a little bit. He's actually an international uh, recognized expert on co-ops, having done significant research in uh, Asia on the subject and co-written 
some academic type books on it on the subject and uh so I met him. I just happened to run into him and he was teaching a class and I was teaching a class. And uh, so it kind of proceeded from there. <laughs> yeah. So the aim of Blue Tongue is to try and set up more and more worker owned cooperatives. Is that basically it? Yeah, in, in, in a nutshell, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what is it that you, you see in the worker owned cooperative model that, that really attracts you? uh myself yeah uh, myself um well it's uh you know my whole career uh uh probably you know over 20 years i've been doing this sort of work organizational people development work and my whole career has basically been devoted in uh you know i mean we spend uh, many employees spend uh half of their waking hours at work half their waking hours at work and so my uh, and then you know, my goal is to improve that experience, improve the employee experience, uh, and because it's not just uh, benefiting the employee, but then there's a roll-on effect for that, right? I mean, they go home, and depending on what their eight to ten-hour experience has been like, then that impacts their relationship with their partners and their children, which affects the children, and then the childrens grow up and become adults, and that's passed on to their children. And uh, so I, I've just uh, uh, been really uh, sort of inspired and committed to doing what I can to improve the, well, and really there's a win-win because lots of times the leaders themselves aren't having that good of a time, you know? I mean, even a top-down autocratic coercive kind of leader is not really a happy person inside themselves. So, uh, you know, what can we do to make this a more positive experience for everybody? That's what it comes down to. I was doing a uh, significant uh, culture change piece for a large government department in Queensland, and it was actually the uh, TMR, Transport and Main Roads. And uh, one of the one of the on the tools kind of guys came up to me on one of the breaks and said, so who are you for, management or labor? And I said, well, whoever's contributing to positive workplaces, that's who I'm for. <laughs> and, and he said, oh, well, that's a pretty good answer because, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's the employees and sometimes it's the management, sometimes it's both, and sometimes it's neither, you know, or contributing to positive workplaces. So uh, that's been kind of the focus of my work the last 20 some odd years. So I'm kind of excited about the opportunity to bring that, I guess, to wrap it around to co-ops. I'm kind of excited about bringing that to the co-op model because it's got a lot of sort of built into the model is the opportunity to create more positive experiences for employees uh, in terms of, you know, uh, being more pro, have more opportunity to be proactive and innovative and uh, sort of stepping up in their own self-empowered and creating more self-belief, self-efficacy, these sorts of things, and to step up to, in their own, to a higher level in their own lives is kind of built in uh, to the model itself. But then back, that's back to the challenge in the uh, culture change and facilitating them up into that. Uh, some of them, some people are ready for that, but uh, not everyone. Thanks yeah. for asking. <laughs> <laughs> and now about you, Rob. So, so what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> so the question was, what is it that you see in cooperatives and particularly worker-owned cooperatives that's really attracted you to the model that you're willing to actually join a crew who's, who's trying to propagate the model? Okay, well, what it, 
there's a few attractions. Um, first of all, I had a, a family business um, that I tried to put a ESOP in place and it didn't work because the profits were coming out of the, uh, well, the transfer to the ownership the assets to buy shares was to come out of the profits and uh, we couldn't make a sufficient profits to transfer the money into so that staff could buy the shares from the trust. So the ESOP didn't work after three years. Then I tried selling to the employees and that just didn't work uh, because a uh, worker can't negotiate with a boss. And then I, I had tried putting it on the open market for uh, it was about 14 months, and all I got was tie kickers, so I couldn't sell the business. Um, I also needed a, uh, you know, it was pretty tight going back uh, about four or five years ago, and I needed that X factor in the, the business to keep it going, and I could see that in employee ownership. So, um, and then I, in a roundabout way, I found out about co-ops and got the co-op working. So it was a, a process of elimination that I came to co-ops. But, um, but the reason I'm so heavily slanted towards um, employee ownership is uh, I've seen staff struggle a lot over the years. They've all got complications. We all have got complications. And uh, my just, um, you know, my ethics, my uh, Christian beliefs and everything, um, want me to look after my staff and employees and create a better working environment. And I've always worked in voluntary organisations um, and um, I saw a co-op working very similar along those lines where everybody contributes. So, yeah, <laughs> that's sort of it. Yeah, nice one, nice one. So, interesting. I guess while we're just on sort of personal motivations, I see you've got chaplaincy up there behind you on the background. Have you got a, a particular place you're coming from in, in the spiritual sort of way as well? Yeah, well, I've been a, became a Christian when I was about 34. Yeah, right. And uh, been on a long walk. And uh, and when I uh, was approaching my retirement, well, halfway through that process, I actually had a major health scare um, that impacted me. So from being a uh, hands-on type worker, solve problems, build things, I had to suddenly sit back and not do too much. And uh, I was wondering what I was going to do in my retirement. And uh, I actually going along to um, uh, Chamber of Commerce meetings in the local area, Cumberland, I actually ran into a chaplain, uh, worker chap place chaplain, and I invited him out to our place just for a coffee, showed him around, and he said, I... You're doing the chaplaincy work in the workplace already. What? You, you're already a chaplain. Why don't you, you don't, take on the title? <laughs> you don't need it. So that got me thinking, and um, I actually um, went out and started making inquiries along that line and got it all confirmed in different ways and did a uh, certificate four in uh, pastoral care in my uh, uh, rent when I was about 60 and and uh, now I had to, I changed my identity from that of a business owner to a business chaplain now. So actually, uh, besides outside of Blue Tongue, I, I spent a lot of time in the local Chamber of Commerce as their welfare officer. And uh, 
I speak to a lot of business people, uh, connecting people, networking, and making things happen on the pastoral care side of things. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. Now, cooperatives are inherently democratic. So um, I know that there's quite a big difference between what we all sort of know as democratic, which is sort of every 800 or so days we'll get one choice to elect a whole party, which is probably going to make something like 340 different choices before the next time you get to sort of take a vote for them, um, roughly. And the actual democracy that's got to take place in a workplace to, to run a, a, a place day to day. I went through a cooperative school, which was a, a democratic school, sorry, rather it wasn't co-op, but... Um, and the daily democracy, which is what I call it in that, was vastly different from anything that you might get from voting now and then. Um, how have you found, I guess, because in the normal schools that I came from before I went to that one, there was no democracy at all. You, yeah, you can hang your democracy on the peg as you go in the door and, and that's the same in workplaces. So through school and through most families and through workplace, we really haven't known this daily democracy, the, the real democracy on the ground. It, it's what we call democracy is just voting every couple of years. Um, how have you found that, that people who've spent their lives without a, a framework for making decisions themselves and, and basically being part of a hierarchy and not at the top where decisions are made, how, how have people adapted to suddenly being expected to take responsibility and, and make decisions? Okay. Um, I guess that's directed at me. <laughs> oh, you can start and then, oh, well, actually, you've had the direct experience, so definitely. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, like any um, business, you've got to make a profit. And um, there's got to be procedures and systems in place to do all that. And there has to be um, a sort of, we had a hierarchical decision-making system. We still had foremen. We still had uh, um, uh, like a division manager. We still had a general manager and we had a board and we had a, um, um, what we call a staff committee. So, uh, and we also had external directors as well. So uh, starting at the, no, we'll start from the bottom. At the bottom, we had toolbox meetings every week where everybody stood up and put their two bobs worth in, um, which we've always had anyway. Um, there was probably a bit more input happening in those. Um, and then the man, because we had several divisions, different areas of the company, there was a management team meeting each week. And they'd all get together and hit heads and come up with ideas and put things in place. And then we had the board meeting um, where there used to be a representative from the staff committee attend the board, um, the external directors, um, a couple of uh, three internal directors. So there's two external directors, three internal directors, and the general manager, and Anthony Jensen, just as a, an advisor, observer from time to time. So that was sort of the uh, hierarchy structure of it. We did change it towards the end, where 
uh, we found a, a general manager wasn't ideal um, and we flattened the top a bit by having three people in charge at the top. Um, somebody looking after all the administration, somebody looking after all the external uh, um, contacts, so basically sales marketing person <clears throat> and somebody in charge of all the production. And uh, we did away with the local uh, the division managers. So, mm. so that was the sort of structure. Um, there is a... <clears throat> A challenge between, uh, well, everybody's an owner. Um, there was a lot of conversations around that, uh, <laughs> you know, being told how to do their jobs and things. But it was more about not, um, it was more about how to do a project or something, you know. It wasn't telling them to so much um, behave yourself. Um, there, was, there was a lot of issues around that, uh, which we had to, play and address but there's always a I'm probably getting off the track here a little bit but there's a big tension between making profits and training people because when you take staff out of manufacturing you're losing your hundred and you know twenty dollars an hour per person so when you've got 30 odd staff that can be quite significant so there was that tension all the time that we wanted to train people in the democracy, decision-making, participation area, but uh, um, you couldn't do it because it cost you a lot of money. And that's what it needed. It needed that regular uh, training and education to convert them from being just a worker to being able to participate. Um, and uh, there's reasons behind that too um, in that um, – we probably made a mistake in the beginning by trying to get everybody to join uh, the cooperative instead of just getting the 10 key excited, really keen people and build the cooperative off those 10 uh, around the philosophies of, of it all by bringing everybody in, it diluted it all and it just wasn't as good as what it could have been. So. That makes sense. So I guess the... the culture could have been created a lot more by the 10 who are really into it and got the idea and, yeah. and were, were for it as opposed to everybody else just floundering around and not quite knowing what was going on. Yeah, just sitting on the fence and seeing what's going to happen sort of thing mm. instead of making things happen. Yeah, interesting. So, Mark, um, you've been doing a lot of these uh, conversions over the years. What, what have you seen in, in the way of people trying to adapt to a new democratic situation where it's a daily democracy rather than a, a periodic sort of democracy. You're muted, by the way. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can hear you now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, to me, this gets back to the shift in mindset that has to happen. Uh, that uh, once again, that... Um, a lot of it, you know, there are the goal for virtually all organizations is for uh, employees to be proactive and innovative, innovative and proactive. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. You can be proactive, but you could be proactive about the same old thing, uh, which is good. But, you know, how far is that going to get you? Uh, you could be innovative, but if you're innovative without the proaction, then it's probably never going to make it out of the desk. 
And uh, most organization, most employ, most organization, well, I don't know about most, many organizations don't encourage this, you know. So I see a willingness to participate in the democratic process is kind of a sub a sub aspect of the proactive innovation. Uh, you kind of, you know, if you're more proactive already, you're more likely to want to participate in that kind of a uh, an opportunity. Whereas if you're if you're already you if you're already used to sort of a top dose, you know, I think employees there are employees by personality who prefer to be told what to do. And then on the other hand, their employees have kind of surrendered to that just because they've not had an opportunity, not had an opportunity to be more proactive, innovative. And in some organizations, it's outright discouraged. You know, um, what, you know, like people get slapped down and so, not literally, but sort of verbally, uh, depending on the culture. Once again, is this a culture where proactive, innovative uh, input is welcome, or is this a culture where it's like, no, just shut up and do your job, you know, kind of thing. And uh, uh, and so ultimately, the challenge is is to move the employees who are not in that proactive, innovative place inside themselves to something closer to it. And as I say, I see the democratic involvement as a subset of that larger issue. Um, that could that's kind of an in-between state, right? You can kind of shift people to democratic participation, which can be a stepping stone to the proactive innovative. And if you've got people who are already proactive innovative, then you know it's kind of a natural thing for me to involve with the democracy. But uh, you know, I think ultimately the issue is that that's being worked against is one of fear. You know, I think if people, weren't afraid, they'd probably be more, more of them would be more inclined to get off the fence, to get off the fence. Because I think there's a natural, I think we'd all as humans like to be operating in a proactive, innovative kind of mode. You know, I think all of us have had the experience of, you know, coming up with, uh, you know, I kind of got to that with what you said earlier, Scotty, that you'd figured it out. And I said, oh, I always like when I figure it out, you know, there's kind of a sort of a uplift that happens when you do that, when you figure it out, you know, and not to put too big a note on, you know, knowing how to, where to plug in stuff, uh, which, you know, I don't know, after I've spent an hour on a computer issue, just to find out the ridiculously simple thing that I was missing, <laughs> which is usually the way it works out, I have a moment of, yeah, sort of celebration inside myself, you know, and, uh, I think that uh, ultimately that's what we can appeal to inside of people. That that, but you kind of have to get them to move out of that comfort zone. If your comfort zone is sort of retracted to a place, you know, innovation requires stepping outside of your comfort zone, right? That is proactivity. And if the comfort zone is retracted to a place where that feels really scary, potentially scary to do. Then it's going to be kind of a challenge to get them to step out to experience the reward of that. See, it's kind of like once you get people out of the comfort zone far enough to experience, oh, well, it does feel better out. Once you get out there and move through the fear, then it's like, wow, I guess it does feel better to be out here. So that's the challenge is to get people out there in sort of a general way, but then that's the more specific challenge in getting people to who are on the fence to participate in the democratic process to kind of once again to get them out there to try it out 
and have that experience, well, okay, maybe life is better like this, as opposed to how it was back here inside my comfort zone. So then that gets back, I'll finish on this, that gets back to the larger culture with how is that being received and being handled, you know? It, it has to, we have to make sure we make that a positive experience for them, you know, that we have to get them to step out of their comfort zone. And then the moment they do ensure that's a rewarding experience for them. So that way, otherwise, if it's not, there'll be a tendency to sort of snap back into it and leave possibly less likely to, to come out next time. So uh, it needs to be something that's celebrated once, once we get them out there, so to speak. Mm. And what are what are some of the the ways that you've seen work to draw people out of their, their comfort zone and and be game to sort of go into the new arena? Well, that's a good question. Uh, Rob was talking about uh, what we call uh, early adopters, uh, and uh, I think sometimes it uh, if you got early adopters, it basically if you got you know, people who have friendships in the organization, early adopters are kind of leading the way, right? They can be role models. And so basically what they're doing is they're, in terms of what I was saying before, they're basically establishing, see, it's okay out here. See, I'm out here. It's okay out here. You'll be okay too. But in order for that to happen, there has to be a, a, a relationship and a trust between the early adopter and the people who are sitting on the fence. So if they're, you know, that kind of relationship can sort of be capitalized on where it exists. Uh, on the other hand, you know, there can be a, a mentoring type relationship, you know, where you actually sit down and talk to people and sort of talk them through uh, what's going on. You know, hey, so, you know, what's going on? And like holding up the, the, the light of the goal, you know, which is that they be full participants. And so how do you feel about that? You know, what, uh, what, uh, uh, what would you need in order to feel comfortable in doing that? You know, so basically looking for, I don't think you'd want to use this language, but looking for, so what are your blocks to doing that inside yourself? What's holding you back from doing that? And that, you know, making it inclusive too. This is what we'd, this is what we would like to see more of here and, uh, and making it clear people do things to avoid consequences and they get benefits, right? So making clear what are the benefits of their doing it? Maybe they don't see it, you know, maybe they don't see it. We can assume, I mean, we may see the benefits, but maybe they don't, maybe they don't, maybe they're just seeing the downside. I don't know. It looks kind of scary to me. Maybe they're not seeing the, uh, the upside of it. Yeah, well, it's often a lot of extra work, and uh, like uh, like Rob was saying, it might require more work than you're actually getting paid for to do it effectively. So, they can be some of the downsides of it, I guess. Sure. So, what's the trade-off in that? Okay, yeah. So, more work. You know, if there isn't a if there isn't an ultimate trade payoff, a, a return on investment of that, well, then why are we even talking about this? <laughs> Let's talk about something where there is a return on investment, you know, but maybe but the thing is, is they haven't done this before. So we have to spell that out for them and to them. Mm, and I guess certainly from my experience through the, the School Without Walls, what was called in Canberra, the, the benefits were sort of intangible and a bit hard to explain. And, and they were more 
I guess, um, the results of experiencing a bit of freedom and a lot more autonomy over your own life and, and being able to contribute to society. I mean, the, there's a definition of power, in, is, which is that power is the ability to contribute to your community. And in that sense, you can become empowered by being able to take that on, but it can be quite a frightening step. Well, and I think another method for that is to like break it down. You know, it's the old, how do you eat an elephant? Well, one bite at a time, right? And uh, breaking it down so it's not like this huge leap where, oh my God, all of a sudden, right? I have to, you know, part this, I'm going to, it's going to be so risky and skip, blah, blah, blah. You know, just break it down and say, okay, well, if you don't feel like you can make the, the full leap into full participation, well, then what part do you feel you can contribute to, you know, as a way to sort of nudge them out of their comfort zone? Because what you just described is having had that positive experience and being out there, you know, say having more full control over your life. So you've stepped out and you've gone, wow, okay, this is pretty cool. This is better than where I was before. And so that's the goal, as I said, is to get them sort of tease them, tease them and nudge them out and reassure them, you know, uh, until they get out there long enough to have that positive experience. You know, wow, I kind of like it. I mean, because ultimately, who doesn't like making decisions about their whole own life, you know, so long as they feel safe and confident in doing that, you know, as opposed to having somebody else, you know, t dictating what to do uh, throughout your day sort of situation. I guess the difference between me rocking up at some school that was already functioning, it had a 20-year-old culture of, of doing this stuff with restorative justice for the discipline, the students could hire and fire the teachers. It was all running. So I got there and I could take those little steps and I could eat a little bit at a time and get the elephant all under my belt in a safe <laughs> manner. Um, but when you're trying to transition a, a workplace from a conventional workplace into a, a democratic one or even just a worker-owned one without necessarily putting the democracy element in there, it's quite a different thing. So, yeah, because everybody sort of has to eat the elephant at the same time and, <laughs> and create their own culture of, of, of elephant snacks, I suppose. Yeah. I, won't go, I won't go any further with that analogy. I don't know. <laughs> Well, I, I take your point. Yeah, in your situation, you could sort of, you had time to assimilate, time to assimilate and kind of time to move at your own pace, if, if I'm correct. Is that kind of the kind yes, of thing Yes, that's saying? right, exactly. Time to, yeah, and, um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a fair point in terms of the difference that, it, you know, it's to a certain extent, We, but still there is that process, there's the, the, the selling and buying process, right? So it's not like exactly just sort of throwing a switch one day, right? It's not exactly. So it may be, uh, it may be more, uh, uh, it may be uh, more extended. The process may not be as extended as yours was, and it may not have an opportunity for sort of individual guidance, uh, individual guided improvement in it. Uh, but there is a transition period, and uh, which is why I think it's important to get back to mentoring with people to help sort of, you know, without pushing to help sort of move them along, you know, and to sort of process as we were talking about their, you know, what what is it that's, you know, I don't like to use pejorative terms like blocks and hangups, but, you know, what is the 
thing. What are the barriers? Yeah. The barriers, yeah. What do they call it in farming? You're looking for your limitations. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yep. So what's the limiting? Well, and I think the question is, is once again, is so how are you let them decide, right? How are you willing? We all tend to feel more comfortable and confident when we're making the decision, you know, and so which is what co-ops are based on. So, you know, how do you see yourself participating and in what way could you participate and contribute at this point? And so that's kind of like leading them by the breadcrumbs, right? So they follow that. Oh, well, I could go this far. Okay, good. So that was great. That was, how was that for you? Ross? Oh yeah, I kind of like it. Okay. Well, how about the next breadcrumb, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. So Rob, I'd like to come back to you on this one as well. Um, how did you, how did you see the blokes coming through this? Like you, you didn't wind up going with the, the group of people who were already keen who could have become the leaders of the culture. How did it how did it sort of manifest itself? You said there were a lot of fence sitters. What were they thinking of as their the limitations as far as you could gather? Um, because they're workers, they're very risk averse. Um, I think that's a big hurdle to get over. Um, but um, Dr. Anthony Jensen did surveys on the employees all through the process, right from the very beginning, from the ESOP, right through. And uh, there was a noticeable change in job satisfaction um, that that had increased. So that's what they all wanted is, you know, everybody wants to do their job well and be happy in doing their job. And uh, the statistics showed that increased. Um, where, where we sent people on courses, we did notice change coming. Uh, it's just unfortunate that we didn't have enough time to get enough people on courses and, you know, train people up in the um, how um, cooperatives are supposed to work enough and grab the uh, vision for it enough. Because um, yeah, it's quite an alien concept really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it can be. Um, it can be. But also I had uh, the business set up in such a way that it could run without me. I wasn't a key player. And because I got crook, I was only coming into work two or three days a week. And that basically it ran by itself for, you know, three, four, five years before it actually transferred over to the employees. So they're used to running the business. So we're at a bit of advantage there. Yeah, definitely. So um, at this point, does anyone else have any other questions? Yeah, look, uh, I've got a couple. Um, uh, the um, so so this this has been applied to worker cooperatives. Um, does it apply to the, the approach? Does it apply to uh, other sorts of cooperatives? Where, and the one I think, of course, I'm thinking of in particular are more like consumer cooperatives, like buyer cooperatives. I guess that's to Mark. Um, well, I. Uh, uh, I think, yeah, it is more directed towards employees. It, uh, but the thing is, is um, 
wherever you have two people, you have culture going on, you might say. And, uh, you know, I arguably, if we're even by ourselves, we have culture going on because we've got it going on inside our own heads. Mm-hmm. So uh, is your is your situation one in which there are employees uh, serving uh, serving the uh, consumer co-op? Not at the moment, no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, just starting up. Um, uh, so I'm a little bit interested in the structure of Blue Tongue itself. Um, so what, what is your structure? I'm sorry, before we move on, if I could say one more thing about that, that, that culture is, is made up of uh, symbols and artifacts. Basically, it's uh, the way we do things around here. You know, so like a web page represents culture, the culture of the organization and everything on there, you know, has a meaning. The culture is basically the meaning we give to things, right? So the, uh, uh, so the symbols sort of offer a meaning that we conclude from the symbols and then that's projected onto the organization. So, uh, which is why, which basically what advertisers specialize in, right? Providing symbols and, and statements that people will project the meaning on, they hope will find that the meaning will find attractive. So, um, in terms of everything that, you know, you, you may not have employees, but nonetheless, there is sort of a psychological culture you're setting up in people's minds towards your organization. And I think it's worth taking that kind of a, a, a point of view, that kind of a point of view towards everything you're using to represent the culture out there. Yeah. So, um, so uh, I'm interested in, in what you do in in Bluetooth. Oh, Bluetooth was a blue tongue, <laughs> not Bluetooth. <laughs> um, in blue tongue, what what sorts of services do you offer, or or, uh, or what do you do? What's your organization do? Well, maybe I'll toss that one to Rob. I'm the organizational change guy, and Rob's sort of more the overall guy. Um, okay, what was the question? What sort of services do we provide? Yeah, yeah okay. Well, basically, it's all our experience comes from around CMAC, plus the expertise of the individuals in their separate fields. Uh, we're focusing more on <clears throat> succession planning because that's what we know. Yep. And, um, so the, the, there's only five of us in the cult um, blue tongue at the moment. So Mark's, as you heard, a HR type person. Frank is a business coach and accountant. And then we've got Dr. Anthony Jensen, who specialises in worker co-ops, not normal co-ops, even though he knows a fair bit, um, but he's worked in Europe and done studies in Europe and he's uh, worked in co-op, uh, co-op advisory centres in the UK. Um, and then we've got a young fella, uh, Mark, who is uh, uh, like a business analysis, analysis type fella. So what we do, we bring all those skills together and use them where we need them in the transfer process, so you're, succession process. So you're a um, you're a cooperative yourselves. Yeah, yeah, we're a not-for-profit cooperative. We're just just getting registered right now. We've been uh, going probably since the beginning of COVID, just online. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so we're pretty close to official now. Uh, so um, that sounds quite interesting. So what? So what do you? What is your culture, as it were? What? What's <laughs> Good well, question. Well, our culture is uh, basically everybody's equal in our cooperative. Um, we do have a a, a um, process we put together. So if uh, somebody rings up and says, "Look, uh, I'm interested in finding out about employee ownership and how's it work, and you know how can I transfer ownership to employees?" We've got a quite an established uh, plan, spreadsheet, and all the things that have got to happen through that process to do that. We just bring each person in to those processes. Yeah. Um, basically, um, my role in it is just to provide answers <laughs> or liaise with the owner because I've been there and done it. So I've got all the owner uh, understanding of business uh, where, where, I'm, where I can sit on their side of the fence and see their situation and help walk them through the process and understand it a bit better. So, yeah. Does that answer the culture? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, it's, it's given me an idea, a bit of an idea as to yeah. what you do. So, so the, the um, it's, a, it's a little bit unfortunate, but my, my, one of my nephews has just been through this process um, and in the end he gave up and, and he, he tried to do the, selling it to the employees, same sort of journey that you mm. went on. And in the end, he, he gave up and, and just sold it to another another person. Yep. Yep. Um, so I'd just be interested to know what he could have done, how he, how he would have been able yep. to go about it. Yep. It's a bit late yep. now. But mm. yeah. Well, I tried to sell the employees and it didn't work. And, yep. and I learned from that lesson that you need a mediator, some independent person that works between the boss and the employees is not on anybody's side and just mediates the whole press process. And then I used Anthony Jensen to bring in his expertise and knowledge to put the structure in place. So do the um, do the employees have shares or what do they have? In the- yeah, they all had one share each. And do they and they will never get more than one share? No. Oh, only one voting share. I think you, you could have bought more shares if you wanted to, but there was no point in doing that. So what happens to the profits? So what, what I mean, that's... Oh, that's the, yeah. right. Okay. We had an internal uh, capital accounts. Uh, it was basically uh, we, we had a... We allocated 10% to profits, um, up to I think it was seventy percent to the employees and the thirty twenty uh, percent back into the business, uh, and that could change each year by the board or by the gen- general assembly by everybody. Uh, it was interesting. The first year uh, we made a nice profit, and the employees decided um, to reduce the, the amount of money to them to stabilise the business and put it in a better cash flow position. And they decided they'd only take, um, I think it was 40% at the time. And what that did, um, <clears throat> that was allocated to each employee based on their um, uh, based on their hours that they worked and, um, and um, 
Hold on, there was something else in it. Because it changed, it changed a couple of times, about three times over the three years how it was done. But um, basically, it went into just on a spreadsheet, allocated money to them, and they could, uh, when they leave the business, they could um, draw down that money. So it was like an extra superannuation for them. So they so, right, okay. Yeah. So does it sort of um, say, for example, that the, the people who had forty percent um, mm. decided to drop down to forty percent? Do they get any advantage from that in the future? I mean, is there any? Um, uh, only secure, securing their future, they were looking at looking after the company to make sure it went forward. So right. they decided not to take all the profits out of it to leave the money in there to drive the business forward. So mm. you know, that was, that's quite surprised me that they made that decision, but they did. Yeah. Yeah, we've got a uh, got a question from Lizzie as well uh, for you again, Rob. Um, were the employees who were engaged? Uh, in casual or more stable employment relationships when you transitioned? All, all the staff were permanent staff working 38 hours a week. Um, and you get all varieties of people, obviously, in your staff. Um, some are good employees, some aren't so good. <laughs> yeah. And, um, Rob, do you think it would make a difference if you had a casualised workforce? In, in taking that discussion forward with them? Um, if you had a casual... There's a high prevalence of casual, yeah. casual workforce. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't think that'd make too much of a difference as long as they had skin in the game, right? Uh, that was a mistake we made to, get every, to make everybody get in. We, you know, the membership was only 100 bucks, you know, to get in. Uh, it should have been... Three thousand or five thousand dollars to get in, and then we would have only got the ten. Mm. Um, so, and then they would have been really keen to make decisions. So, I don't think uh, whether they're casual or or not, um, you, you had good and bad casuals too. <laughs> mm. Okay, thanks. I don't know. Maybe Mark can answer more along those lines. Well, I think that uh, once again, all employee motivation is about uh, benefits and consequences, you know, and I think uh, uh, the more like uh, what Rob is referring to, the, the more money people have invested, then there's a more potential consequence if they're not involved, whereas it's easy to, there's low relatively low consequence in uh, losing a hundred. There's definitely a higher consequence in and, and more money at risk uh, in terms of 3,000 to 5,000. And uh, I think the same thing would apply regardless of the uh, type of employment if you actually had that much money required uh, to ante up, so to speak. Uh, but I think in general, you know, as a I think probably what Lizzie may be getting at is that in general, I think there's probably less psychological sense of uh, investment, all things being equal, so to speak, no money involved. 
uh, less psychological sense of investment with the casual employees versus the more stable employees. And the same thing, depending on how long they've been employed there too. You know, arguably a, a casual employee who's been there a long time has more investment than perhaps a new employee who's there full-time, who works full-time potentially. So, uh, but I think ultimately it's what Rob was saying in terms of the supporting uh, the involvement of people. Really, it's not so much how much, uh, how much time they work as it is how much uh, investment and how much they have at risk. Uh, you know, I mean, the more money I'd have involved, you know, I'd, uh, I'd so, you know, I have uh, more investment in someplace I have a mortgage on than someplace I'm just renting, <laughs> so to speak, you might say, because there's a, a lot more at risk. So that, I definitely want more participation in the thing where, uh, I have more money at stake in order to protect my original investment. I don't know. I think that covered it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in this, I guess, this cultural change, what's the role of stories? Because stories are a massive thing. I guess it's the, the heuristic of a human is, is the story. It's the, the shortcut that we use to make sense of our, our surroundings and, and how we're supposed to operate within them. And what's the role of stories in all of this stuff, I guess? It's a big part of culture, right? Every organization, it's got its organizational culture, right? I mean, organizational story that's part of its culture. It's got its history. It's got its successes. It's got its, you know, failures and how we overcome kind of stories, you know, and uh, and all that's definitely part of it and hangs out in people's heads, you know, and uh, and I think that's one of the uh, uh, one of the aspects that determines how willing, you know, we all want to contribute to a winner, right? We all want to feel like we're contributing or part of a winner or alternatively, we want to be convinced and inspired. We can turn this one around. We can turn this one around and really in between is where people kind of languish. You know, if you don't either feel like you're part of a winner or feel confident and inspired to turn this one around, that's not a winner. Then you're kind of in this between zone where it's not a winner. And it's got, doesn't really have hope of turning it into one. So I think this is one of the, one of the things, you know, I think what you're getting at is, uh, is how we, can we, uh, uh, and it's all again, it's all part of the culture mix we, we carry around in our head, you know. So I think if we don't have stories to work with, then there's other things we need to look for to work with, you know, in terms of. Uh, and so part of the challenge is who makes those decisions early on, you know, who makes the decisions about. I mean, all cultures are always easier to establish on the front end than they are to change. Right. Obviously, the earlier we can establish the culture, so it's going to contribute to positive involvement, the better. So the, the, the challenge is, though, the early on is, is that the uh, um, people may not necessarily know the options. The employees may not necessarily know the options for that. So there has to be somebody like our organization who steps in to help people. And the other thing is, is that saying that does the fish know it's in water? You know, we're like in the culture without knowing what we're in, what we're swimming in. You know, once I once I moved out of the United States to Australia, then I could take a look back and go, wow. So that's the water I was swimming in the whole time. <laughs> you know, there's but before that, there's no basis of comparison. You know, so same same thing with employees in the culture. Often they don't know what they're in and what any alternatives are. 
for the culture that they're in. So I think that's why early on it's up to people like us to come in and sort of hold up a mirror and say, okay, this is the water you've been swimming in. How's that working for you? And here's maybe some better water you might want to swim in. And so uh, part of that is the, so that's kind of the bigger pain in the bigger picture on the whole stories thing. So then the stories fit into that and into that. And how much do those stories contribute to the kind of culture we want? Maybe we need to give some stories the pitch, you know, give them the flick. On the other hand, maybe there's some stories that we're overlooking, you know, we're like minimizing that really are more significant than we'd given credit to before. Or maybe in a case of an island on this, in a case of an organization where aren't any stories, once again, as I said early on, then we need to focus on other things. What are other positive things that we can focus on in order to create more of an uplifted, inspired kind of a culture, especially going into this change on the front end, going into this change. And what do you think about the, I guess it's the the scale of our stories. Um, a lot of people when they're going to work, coming home, doing the chores, watching TV, going to bed, going to work, just in the cycle of work every day, every day, your, your horizon of your story is fairly small. It's sort of your family and, and maybe your workplace. But then, of course, you can get larger than that. You might get into politics. So it might be local or state or national, or you could go international or even beyond humans into the, the ecological sphere and start including a bigger and bigger family in your community, I suppose, just through changing your story and the scale of your story. Do you reckon that might be a... a a way in. Uh, I'm not. I like that phrase, the scale of your story. <laughs> I like that. I think I may ruminate over that myself <laughs> in my own life. What? Huh, what's the scale of my story in these different areas of my life? Um, but um, so, but I'm not exactly sure the connection of that, uh, the scale of the story to mm. the actual organizational culture. Or, Mm, I'm thinking this, the scale of a worker's general life, which is, you know, my role in the workplace. And you might have to scale that out a bit so that now I am in charge of the company. So it's a, it's a larger scale of, of what you have to deal with with your stories, I suppose. Well, I think that's a great point. Yeah, because, uh, you know, we can. So, the yeah, the each employee is, has their own story relative to the organization. Right. Yeah. I started on this day. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, I interviewed and I started on this day and I took the job for these reasons. You know, and I had this induction and trained their whole story uh, about it. And and uh, if we can. And I think that's part of one of the things we want to accomplish is is uh, in terms of. A, an approach to one of the benefits I mentioned earlier, you know, the challenges to make clear the benefits to them, they may not be seeing of greater participation. And I think uh, that would be a good way to put that, you know, trying to create a bigger story uh, for them. Paint a, well, somebody said you want to paint a picture uh, that they want to be in, paint a picture they want to be in so they go yeah that's the picture i want to be in and so then it's like okay well here's the steps you'll need to take to be in that picture and uh so i think that's another way of putting what you said about uh create a bigger story uh about where they're going to the story is about where they're going to end up you know what they're going to experience as a result of uh greater participation 
Yeah, yeah, I like that one. It's the, the transition towns mob used that model quite a lot as well, I think. Yeah, Mark, you've got a question. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, uh, Rob and Mark. When you talked about the training that the staff needed to do in your business and uh, you had this tension between the production of, you know, getting the business operating so it sort of made money and then you had people's time off to go and get trained, what was the most valuable training that uh, you felt added the, the maximum value to the, the business and the employees? Or if you didn't find any, what would you recommend as the as the best yeah. training? Actually, circulating uh, members up onto the board so they can see outside of their world of the shop floor and see how the business operates. So actually sending them off to um, the Cooperative Federation's board training was quite good. They came back much uh, more enlightened on on everything. So And that tended to gener generate a lot of enthusiasm in people when that happened. So that was probably the best bit of training, yeah. Okay. And and in that so inside that training, what do you think the elements of being on the board gave people that they didn't have before? What skill set or capability uh, made the well, biggest difference? Well, I'll give you something to laugh about. <laughs> um, before we set up the cooperative, we did a memorandum of understanding of what I wanted out of the sale of the business and what employees wanted out of it at all, and we agreed on that. And one of the things they brought up was that they didn't believe they needed a general manager um, because for their different reasons. Now, once they, two years into being the, into the cooperative, People couldn't go up and see the general manager because he was too busy. He never had time to talk to anybody. He was so flat out. So the shop floor people, like I said, they're in their world and they don't see the big picture of all the things that are happening in the business. Um, we even had a young fellow uh, who was an estimator and uh, we put him um, for a uni um, to do a postgraduate course in business management and he kept saying he just couldn't believe how much there is in running the business and he thought he could run the business as he was, you know. Uh, it's, you know, they can't see the, what each other's doing, you know. And that, that and that happens a lot in the what we found happened a lot. People started complaining about other people not doing their jobs properly. It was because they didn't know what they, those other people's jobs were. Yeah. So, yeah. so was the default always to say that you needed a manager to organise that work or did you ever try things like sociocracy or holocracy as, as ways of uh, oh, decentralising? They're, they're big words for me, sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, put it in a more practical sense. Oh, yeah, look, I'm not saying I'm familiar with them either, mm. but they're, they're methodologies for actually taking out management responsibility and for having uh, each job negotiate between itself what the handover is mm -hmm. so that um, you could have a description of all of that and everybody knew what the, the measuring, you know, what you'd measure and how you knew what was your responsibility and what was the person yep. upstream from you's responsibility and same downstream so that you, could, you didn't need a manager to tell everybody that stuff. They could do it themselves. And when they saw something going wrong, they also had the capacity to 
reflect on it together and and change the rules of how it works. So you didn't have someone, you know, imposing that on you. You were self-organising around doing all of that and documenting it in your own job. So it's... Yeah. I, th- I believe we had that in place, but it wasn't documented. Uh, we were going down that path. So we got a a large job or something, instead of the manager going out and organising, we'd find one of the workers and say, do you want to get involved in this job and be responsible for it? And he'd go out and speak to the customer, get all, all the details and make up the drawings and and uh, make up the bill of materials. But where, whenever he needed help, he'd make up the bill of materials and then he'd give it to the purchasing officer to go purchase all the goods. If he wanted to get... Um, advice on oh, I don't know how to do this part of the job it's engineering well then he'd pull in the one of the engineers to come and help him so we're, we're giving them their independence in running the jobs and we found that the jobs went through the workshop a lot quicker and a lot more efficient efficiently by having somebody on the shop floor in charge and there was a better relationship with the customer too mm. in a lot of ways so that was starting to work well um, but yeah, you can't do that on every job, you know, because you get a lot of. We had a lot of small work, like I think I had average or our average job size was only about twelve hundred dollars, um, but some jobs were you know sixty hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars. So one person couldn't do everything. Yeah, we had to work as a team to make an engineering job happen. You know. Yeah. And then the other thing I heard you say is that uh, people only put a hundred bucks in, so that when times got tough, uh, they they never really had enough um, equity in the whole game to really go into that fear zone when you know the business might be collapsing, and really dig deep to find a new way of solving the problem and and put uh, put a big effort into it. Maybe you know you talked a bit about fear that uh, if people don't step into that. And do it, to, you know, together. They it's easy just to hold back and retreat and watch the whole thing sort of collapse and just sort of go downhill because you've got a an exit strategy, and you you feel safer with your exit strategy than taking the risk of overcoming the fear to create something new together. Yeah, that's very well put. <laughs> but, but there was another side to it. It's a problem in Australia. It's with fegs. See, I had a lot of long term employees that've been with me. 15, 30 odd years. And if the business failed, their redundancy package was so big it didn't worry them <laughs> uh, because you know, they had sixty dollars or $80,000 coming to them. So uh, the federal um, uh, entitlement guarantee is where a business fails, the government will pay the employees' entitlements. So because... There was no fear there. Um, they didn't sort of. There was employees that did care, but there was a lot that weren't particularly worried. Especially the older fellas who didn't want to change their ways and had been there for a lot of years. They didn't care if the business failed because they get all their money, and because they're quality tradesmen, they all could get jobs. You know, within weeks, they weren't like a unskilled workforce either. So there was some issues there, you know. There's, it's accumulation of things. Um, another one um, 
uh, I mean, th things go, what happens when you have a problem, say, say we all don't like freeloaders? Right? Mm. Um, how do you handle, or how does the group handle that sort of thing? What, what happens? In... Uh, well, they, they just leave. <laughs> um, so how do they, why would they leave? <laughs> well, if, if you don't get on with your, your other staff, um, you know, there, there is issues. And you've got to remember it is a normal business. If people don't perform, yeah. You get your three warnings and you're out. You, you have your performance reviews as well too. So even though you might have an ownership in the business, you, you're still responsible to do a fair day's work. Okay, so you still had your managers and yeah. so the so the, all the processes were still in place. Yeah, yes. For handling all that sort of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Right. I'm guessing that what you were just getting at, Rob, um, was that, the, there's a, an ancient system of organisation where, where human groups basically have the space to self-organise. They form into a commons. A lady called Eleanor Ostrom won the, uh, the Nobel Prize, economics prize um, for economics. That was well said, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> know what you meant. <laughs> anyway, she won this prize um, studying commons. And one of, the, one of the key bits of commons is graduated sanctions. So if somebody in the group isn't pulling their weight, then their mates next to them are going to say, well, you're really not pulling your weight, mate. You should pull your socks up, don't you reckon? But then if they're not, they'll get a little bit closer to them and breathe their bad <laughs> breath in their face and say, you better get better, mate. Or and I guess the end point of that is either them getting forced out socially or getting the flick officially. It's a natural process. Yeah. Well, and I think uh, some people are better at handling that process than others. And there's a whole uh, training aspect to that as well. And uh, I think that, um, which is why, and, and the way that process is handled can be a fairly significant contributor to the overall uh, cultural impression. You know, what kind of a culture do we have here? And part of people's definition remember i suggested earlier culture is about the meaning we give to things you know so what's what's the type of process by which those kinds of situations are handled and what does that say about our culture and what does that say about me in the culture kind of thing you know and uh you know i've taught when i've uh, trained leaders in uh, dealing with unacceptable employee behavior you know that the ultimately how someone is sacked makes a statement to everyone about the kind of organization we have here. You know, how were they sat? Were they, you know, thrown out, you know, summarily, you know, geez, is this the kind of organization I work for? Or were they handled sort of sensitively and, uh, and uh, proactively given a chance as, to improve uh, kind of thing. So I think those on the other uh, employees aren't used to doing that kind of thing. They're not, they're having used to having that done to them, but they're not necessarily used to doing it with other people. And uh, so I think there's a value in, uh, in having a sort of a formal process set up. So everybody knows that everybody's going to get the same treatment for, you know, the same kind of behavior in a similar kind of situation so that it's sort of well-defined, you know, and I think that uh, so long as it's well-defined enough 
so long as the process is well defined enough so there's no surprises then it tends to reduce resistance and everybody knows when it's time to leave you know i belong to groups where where people just knew when it was time to go <laughs> you know they they sort of exited themselves you know so really little effort was required and i think that's ultimately that's kind of like what rob was mentioning i think ultimately that's the goal where people just know okay this is not a good fit for me anymore you know with this with this group with this organization but if they don't get that then i think it's good to have processes in place where we can let them know that or lead them to that conclusion and then if they still don't get it let them know that yeah sorry you're just we're not a good fit here for you so as as a, as a, a consultancy essentially think how do you guys get a skin in the game of people that you are or do you um that you are advising so you, you know you if if having skin in the game is important if you're if you're a consultant to something how do you how do you get skin in the game in the, the in the in the organizations with which you're consulting you mean besides our own personal commitment or yeah i mean um we've um if if part of if part of the whole process is that you know you can come along and do your consulting uh, what's but you can also walk away um and then obviously you wouldn't do that ethically and so forth and so on but is there a way in which you can you you can participate in the in the success of the the businesses that you're um, um that you're advising uh, in a formal kind of a way i mean like you know like uh in a uh how should we say i think uh, the question is do you get an equity stake in the companies you're transforming yeah like money <laughs> like <Yeah>. money <laughs> kind of a thing and it always seemed to me that uh consultants or that sort of business is is um uh Okay, if it works, there it's great success. If it doesn't work, well, there's another one around the corner. Uh, well, I think uh, you know, speaking personally, and uh, yeah, I, I know I'm familiar with that kind of situation. And uh, you know, matter of fact, you know, many consultants have got that sort of reputation, you know, for coming in and charging a lot of money for 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 a little contribution, and then just walking away to the next one and uh and i think that uh i know for myself and from what i've experienced about the other members we have a higher level of uh, integrity and uh, cuz we're because we're you know it relates to what i said early on you know because we want to improve people's lives you know we want to improve people's uh, that that's our goal it's not just billable hours you know kind of a thing and uh and that that's why we're in this you know we're i mean you know, uh, we've done a lot of work in bringing our co-op together unpaid, you know, unpaid because we see, we want, you know, see this as a vehicle to uh, to fulfill that mission and that goal of improving people's lives uh, where they, like I said earlier, where they spend at least half of their waking hours, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that's our skin in the game, you might say. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, well, I can say that uh, Frank and Anthony, in our succession process, put an exceedingly huge amount of effort in beyond what they got paid for considerably, probably two or three times more, to see uh, succeed. So there was a model um, in Australia for others to follow. And uh, I don't think any of us uh, are in this business to make a quick buck by tomorrow. <laughs> it's just not It's just not going to happen. Um, there's only 16 worker cooperatives in Australia, <laughs> you know, uh, and we've got to get some runs on the board. Um, not upset people. <laughs> and the only way to do that is to make it work. And that might mean going the extra mile. Because I think we all believe in that, uh, you know, this, um, there's got to be a better structure for business than the way it is now. And there's got to be more opportunities for people, more uh, equality, more equity. It's, better equity distribution. Now, we're all uh, got those principles in the cooperative. So um, it's not, you know, get a bit of money and run. That's not what it's about. Yeah. Now, I know that uh, Frank and Anthony, when they were putting in all these hours, they were basically putting it in to try and get this cultural change through, essentially. And uh, It takes a lot of time. And how mm. close was it to working out before the company closed up? Oh, yeah, no, it was it was working. Um, <clears throat> we had made all the changes. It's just it was just a cash flow issue. The work pulled us under in the end. Um, I mean, yeah, there's lots of issues, but um, yeah, um, not going to get away from that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, there, there was people on the floor that really wanted to bring change and make things happen, and and um, got themselves on the board and demanding things to happen and uh, it just and we flattened the management structure a bit and uh, we had to weed weed out problems at the top of the management structure as well and it was all happening but you know because there was that caring attitude of the employees uh, instead of going in and saying oh we don't want you anymore see you later it was trying to negotiate and work with them and make people see the democratic side of it and step aside or, you know, and all this type of stuff takes time. You can't do it in five minutes. Uh, it's easy to go and sack somebody and uh, <laughs> or make them redundant or something like that and pay them out and send them on the way. But, you know, we didn't do that. You know, there was people there that had anxiety issues and uh, from home and that and, the staff really looked after them and went the extra mile to keep them. Yeah. So the business is going well now? No, the business is actually, uh, the company's closed down oh. and the business has been broken up into three separate businesses now. Right. Can you tell that story of, of what actually happened in the end? Um, oh, keeping it real short. Yeah. Real short. <laughs> Right, there were some um, issues that the workers decided not to get the R&D tax exemption anymore, which took up, uh, they thought they were ripping off the government. So that was $100,000 off the top line. And they didn't see that they had to replace it with a million dollars worth of work to do that. That was one. Then they had um, two workers' compensation claim, claims that went from 60 
uh, well, doubled the workers' comp for the year. So it went from 60 to about 120,000 in the year. Then they, um, we had a um, <clears throat> uh, what a ransomware attack which shut the company down for a month. Uh, you can imagine with 30, 40 employees and hundreds and hundreds and customers and all the records getting messed up. That had to be re-established. And that happened uh, two months before Christmas. Then you go into Christmas with 30 staff, uh, cash flow issues. You come out of Christmas, January is always a quiet month. You still got to carry the staff and then February starts all happening. So come towards the end of the February, we'd tried everything we could to try and get loans and get cash into the company um, and nobody would lend us money um, because the pre that 12 months we were running at a loss. Prior to that, we'd made profits. So the company, you know, we couldn't show real profitable books, so nobody would lend us money at no security. Um, there was some um, th an issue with the general manager in that he was ideal for the first 12 months, but um, he couldn't um, <clears throat> do long-term planning or believed in strategic planning, we tried to move him to one side and that created a lot of issues around that. We should have probably just retrenched him, <laughs> but we tried to look after him and do the right thing by him. And <clears throat> so he had a lot of self-interest and not the uh, actual uh, cooperative in interest. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's – so we went into um, – Voluntary administration, well, we called in a voluntary administrator to give us advice, and they told us we're basically in the early stages in insolvency, and they recommended that we should go into voluntary administration and they'd be able to clean it all up and uh, get us all back on track. Um, they were very good salesmen. All they wanted to do was get the business, and um, um, and they went, everything they said just didn't happen. Um, it was a disaster. And uh, they were going to uh, then it went into liquidation, and they were just going to sell all the business up. And I stepped in and said, "You let me advertise the business." And within a week, they had eight inquiries. <laughs> um, they couldn't believe it. And uh, oh, in, in in that period, while we we're in voluntary administration, <clears throat> because of COVID, we got so much work we couldn't do it. <clears throat> we had one order for. Um, we had one order for about 150,000, but potentially 3.4 million, which was equal to our turnover. The administrator wouldn't take it on because it was out. It went longer than their administration period. And we had two other orders over $100,000, which we couldn't take on because, again, it went outside the period of time, the statutory requirements of the voluntary administration period. So um, yeah, it got sold off for a song. Um, somebody bought the company for 200 grand. $5 million turnover company and um, all the assets and everything. And um, yeah, and since then, um, because most of the staff moved on, they got jobs straight away because they're um, <coughs> uh, tradesmen, you know, good quality tradesmen are hard to find. So, uh, and then the new owners found he's having trouble running the business because he didn't have the expertise or the knowledge. So then he sold off the different sections of the business because he couldn't do it all on his own. So now there's three separate companies. That's the story.
Thanks, Rob. You explained that very well. I can see all the things that lined up there to make it hard for you. What what was the key lesson that you learned out of that experience? If you had your time again, what would you do differently? Well, what would I do differently? That's a a hard one. Um, I would have more training. I would have forced, well, what happened? Because they were only $100 to join in, they weren't prepared to do training out of working hours. They'd only been training in working hours, the workers. If we could have gotten them to do the training out of work hours, we would have saved the business. Yeah. They are great lessons, Rob. That's a powerful uh, journey that you've been on. And and those other 16 worker-owned co-ops in Australia, have you done an analysis of them to understand the which ones are going really well and which ones are struggling and and what's the lessons that they've got? Because your experience is very powerful in yeah. in that journey. And I'm just wondering if the future of worker co-ops in Australia is going to be positive. We really need to understand the essence of what works well and what's got to be in place to, to change, you know, get to a new economy where instead of, um, you know, guys like Bezos and, uh, and Virgin Galactic flying into space, you know, we actually, we actually just do some good stuff here on Earth with workers owning their own workplaces and businesses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so those other 16 cooperatives, they're very – there's only one of, or a couple, you know, there's the Earth Worker one, which is starting to grow and develop down in um, Victoria. There's the uh, one in uh, Tasmania, which is the recycling um, business in Hobart. Yep. Uh, they're starting to grow and develop. Um, but there's no, there's one other in um, Perth in Western Australia that's a manuf- in manufacturing. They're very small and struggling themselves. Um, the the others are not. Uh, I need the list in front of me to go through them, but they're very inconsequential. There's no, nothing of substance. We were by far the most substantial worker cooperative um, around by, by a long shot. Mm. Mm. So um, it's pretty sad, the situation. Yeah. We're way behind all the countries overseas, way behind Europe, the United States, UK. It'd be ten years behind. So, is there any? I mean, I think what what you what I hear you saying is you're looking for businesses that are currently owned by either a, you know an, a, a, an entity or a partnership or a family or something like that that believe in these values and want to see a succession plan to turn the you know a, a corporation into a cooperative that that shares all its profits with its community and its workers and it, you know, builds a thriving community around it and it succeeds into the future. That's, that sounds like what your vision is. Yeah, that's, that's the vision. And, uh, you know, um, baby boomers, um, even though the average age is about 70 now, still have got control of about 60% of businesses in Australia. Yeah. And uh, so there's a massive succession that's got to go on there. And uh, that's where if we're, they can't sell their business, what do they do with them? Yeah. You know, we had a pretty good business. Uh, but, so uh, what it sounds like it. Is, you, is you need a value proposition for that audience to say to them, here's the future of, your, of what you've invested your life in to turn it into something that can flourish for a broader range of people. 
you know, if your children or the or your succession plan isn't going to sustain the business, how can you transform it into something that um, grows and flourishes for everybody? Yeah, yeah. If you could sell that message, you know, it'd be interesting to see how many people would want to sign up and give that a give that a shot. Well, that's basically our message. Um, yeah, it's getting it out there. It's it's always challenging. Um, how, how would you go about um, uh, some workers wanting to start up a business as a workers co-op? What would that be a sensible way for them? You know, if you've got a you've got a group of people who who've got an idea as to what they want to do, and they want to they want to be a workers co-op. Um, but they're starting up a startup business. Well, like Mark said, easier. Um, it's it's easier with a startup business because you're, you're developing the culture. Right. Uh, you're not converting the culture. So, um, but sure, you know, we can offer advice or, you know, free advice. <laughs> you know, it's no, it's pretty. You know, that's what I'm giving you guys. You know, Sh- share what we've learned. Sounds to me like the administrator was a bit of a problem. So, yeah, that, that's why we flattened it to three people in the end. Yeah, yeah. I think at the uh, at the New South Wales Co-ops Conference, you you pinpointed the administrator as as. Yeah, I've got to be careful what I say, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, just doing your due diligence on the on the administrator if you're considering doing that, because mm. I know there's a, there's a cooperative in Canberra. It's in voluntary administration at the moment, mm. and um, yeah, I'm just hoping that their administrator would be better than your one was. Oh, oh that that voluntary that administrator. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Well, what you got? To, the question you got to ask is. Um, what percentage of companies do you return back um, versus closing down? That's the yeah, key yeah. question. And I I didn't quite, when they were in, I didn't quite click on it. I said, why should we employ you guys as our voluntary administration? And he said, oh, nobody's ever asked me that question before. Oh, <laughs> I wow. And I should have, you know, I should have twigged. I, but I've learned after, you know, that's the question to ask. What percentage? The companies do you say? And I've actually met a company, um, a voluntary administrator, since that uh, you know I wish I'd gone with. He had he had like a high percentage, you know, like sixty percent of his companies he saved. And uh, the sad part about it was our accountant on the cash flow right at the end, uh, before we went into liquidation, he said, looking at all these figures, we could have saved the company, you know. We could have got through. So I guess going for the administration a little bit later would have avoided the need to do it at all. Yeah, but remember, employees are risk averse. Their homes are on the line. If we'd gone too far into um, insolvency trading, knowingly going in it, they would have jeopardised their homes. Yeah, so is that just the employees that were on the board or everybody? Uh, everybody. Wow. Wow. Well, yeah, that, that's probably worth being risk averse a bit then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the big yeah. risk. I mean, even the external directors uh, are liable. Mm. If they had knowingly known that the company was trading insolvency. Um, yeah. Uh, 
yeah, even myself, um, even in all this process, I know they investigated, considered um, going me for my money, um, but um, I, there hadn't been anything um, illegally done. If there had been one little hiccup, <laughs> I would have been in trouble and would have lost everything. Yeah. Um, right, Al, we should think of winding up, I reckon. Is there, is there, any... there, there, there is a way around it. Yeah. I think I mentioned it at the conference, is cooperatives should, um, the directors should work out what the entitlements are and then set up a trust and have the cooperative set those, transfer money into that trust and have that trust set up in such a way to protect it from uh, voluntary administrators. So there is a workaround. Um, I got that off the voluntary administrator, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you should have done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, as it worked out in the end, uh, the directors, they didn't, they lost all their entitlements, their long service leave, their um, um, holidays, everything like that. But there was enough money left over in the liquidation process that the liquidator was able to pay out their entitlements. If there wasn't, they would have missed out on everything. So in the end, everybody got everything owing to them. Yeah, okay. right. Yeah, because no. they're sort of the last ones to get paid, aren't they? Uh, the directors are, yeah. Yeah. Even though they were workers, full-time and workers, they were still looked upon as a director. Yeah. Any further questions for either Mark or Rob? Take that as no. And anything you guys would like to add and finish up? I know it's great to be able to spread the story. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Yeah. Well, look, look. Uh, thank you very much for for sharing the story. It's uh, really, really interesting and. Uh, we, I think we've got some lessons there um, <laughs> um, to, uh, to think and ponder about. Yeah. Yep, definitely. All righty. Well, thank you very much. To, uh, I just thought I'd leave you with one more of my favourite quotes regarding culture, and that's uh, Peter Drucker, who was a highly regarded business consultant for a long time, who infamously said culture eats strategy for breakfast <laughs> <laughs> it does the point yes. being if your strategy is not something that is accepted or aligned with the culture it's very unlikely to happen you know it's amazingly powerful stuff isn't it well thanks a lot to mark huston and rob mcmaster from the blue tongue co-op thanks heaps for coming along and uh, good luck with the future Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Same okay. to you. Thanks for having us. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years 
on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au. That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A.org.au. Or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay. L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.